And we know from the verses that I'm going to read in a moment that the gospel that Paul proclaimed, that, that Paul had taught, uh, went around telling people about, was the gospel of God. And it's there in Romans chapter 1. We read those first uh, seven verses again. And it's there in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As far as Paul was concerned, once he'd met with Jesus, that was his reason for living. There was no other reason for Paul to be living except for to proclaim the gospel of God. And we know in the book of Galatians, he said, for me to live is Christ. In other words, if I'm alive, then it's going to be all about Christ. And then he said, and to die is gain. So he said, if I die, well, I'm a winner. Because if I'm living, it's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about sharing the good news. But if I die, well, I'm also a winner because I'm going to be in his presence. And so his life, once he'd met with Jesus, was all about the gospel. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from God according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus or to Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we're in this chapter, I cannot miss out verse 16 again. For I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So this, morning, this, this evening, I want to bring some emphasis really from verses 3 and 4 where he talks about the gospel of God, which is concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So straight away in these verses we find, these opening verses of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we find that as far as he was concerned, the gospel of God is all about God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about anyone else. It's not about anything else. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if it is all about Jesus, and you'll probably get, well, I hope you, I'm going to say, you'll probably get fed up and be saying this, but I hope you won't get fed up and be saying this. If it's all about Jesus, then we need to be sure in that which, that in, we need to be sure that that which we believe about Jesus is according to the word of God. And, and here in these opening verses, Paul is bringing up two essential things concerning Jesus. In verse 2, he says, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then in verse 3, he says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So what is Paul 
saying here in these verses? Well, the first part, according to the flesh, he is saying here that he believes that Jesus was fully man. And then when he says in verse 3, declared to be the Son of God, Paul is also saying that he believes that Jesus, although fully man according to the flesh, was also fully God. In other words, he believed without any doubt in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was both God and he was man as well. And as I've said, I've continually emphasised this over the time that I've been here. In fact, the first time we came to preach, the very first weekend, with a view to coming here as your pastor, that was my very theme, that what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ is important. And I will never move away from that. And so I will keep bringing it up, because we need to keep reminding ourselves in this day in which we're living in, where there are so many isms, there's so many cults, and even with Christendom themselves, there seems to be are drifting away from the essential truths concerning who Jesus was. And so I'm going to continue to emphasize it because it never does us any harm to consider these things again. For when we consider the truths concerning Jesus, it reaffirms in our heart the vital truths and it reaffirms us in the faith, enabling us to stand firmly upon the word of God, which is a word of truth. And so our, our message is quite simply this that Jesus only is our message. I asked Cameron if he knew that hymn and he didn't know it. We would have had it tonight, but Jesus only is our message. And we must never move away from that. And I will never move away from that. Jesus only is our message. And what God's word says still stands as truth. And knowing enables us to give answers. Remember what I said last week, that little section from 1 Peter chapter 3. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, that verse is telling us that other folk, when they see that we truly understand who Jesus is, and when we've accepted him, and when we live after him and live for him, they will notice that there is a hope in us that they haven't got. And so they'll want to know about that hope. And I trust that we're living and will live in the days that are ahead in such a way that Christ is so radiating from us because of who we are, because of him, and because of what we believe, and the lifestyle we live because of the gospel, that men and women will say, so and so is so different. When everything is crumbling around in their lives, they say, why is that person standing so, he's full of hope, he's full of joy. Uh, people should notice that we're different with our attitude and our demeanour because Jesus is in our lives and has made a difference to us. And my prayer is that people will look at me and they want to know what is the reason for my hope? And as a result, because I've been delving into the word of God and I have an understanding of the gospel, I am able to tell them it's all about Jesus. Nothing else, it's Jesus who came and gave his life for us. So I think there's an increasing need to understand these truths today. For there is a risk today in many churches, uh, and you can go online and watch so much of what is being said or going on in some churches, there's a risk today in many churches of the gospel becoming a social gospel, rather than it being about sin and salvation. 
which requires a sinless saviour and of the need for repentance and obedience to the claims of the gospel. And it's within this first chapter and in verse 5 that Paul talks of obedience of faith. In other words, what he's saying is the purity of the gospel message and our faithfulness in our declaring of it should bring about a change in the lives of those who hear it as they respond by faith and obey. And this links in with a little bit of what I said this morning. The gospel which is about Jesus, the Son of God, should lead to Jesus becoming both an individual saviour, that is the faith aspect, and Lord, which is the obedient aspect. We come by faith, but once we've come by faith, we obey. Remember again last week concerning Saul. I said that after his Damascus Road experience, he changed his allegiance. Before, as far as he was concerned, he had to obey the chief priests. But once he'd encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted him as his saviour and Lord, his allegiance changed that now he was going to be obedient to the one who was not the chief priest, but the great high priest, the Lord Jesus himself. And as we know in Philippians, he declared to the Philippian church that it is Jesus Christ who is Lord. He is the one that we bow the knee to and he is the one that we need to allow and to come and to be Lord in our lives and Galatia, to the Galatian church Paul said I have been crucified with Christ uh, it is no longer I who live but it's Christ living in me that's faith and obedience because he'd come to faith and because he'd allowed Christ to be the Lord of his life he could say I've been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me in other words it's Christ living in him that governed his life governed the kind of person he was and governed what it was that he was going to be doing. And he goes on to say, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then again in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, he says, but far be it from me to boast. And this is what we had in, I've closed the book now, that hymn we've just sang. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what faith and obedience does. It means that we're willing to die to the flesh. We're willing to die to the world. The flesh, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And Christ comes and takes centre stage, full stage in the very centre of our lives. And in the Roman letter in chapter 6, this is what Paul says. We, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. That's the bottom line, isn't it? Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So let us reaffirm what scripture has to say about this one called Jesus, the Son of God. For without him and without what he came to do and accomplished, there would be no gospel message. There would be no good news of great joy for salvation. We would still be lost in our sin and we would still be heading for a lost eternity. And so I reaffirm this evening in what I'm going to share that every aspect of the life and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is vital in the whole realm of salvation. I know that we emphasise his death and his resurrection and that's where the salvation was procured but everything else concerning Jesus is of equal importance because without the one stage there wouldn't be the next stage and then there wouldn't be the next stage until we get to the point where there would be no second coming where he would be coming to take us to be with himself. And Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, the verses that I think a few of us preached without realising we were going to be preaching it, one after the other sometime last year, he says, My brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then Paul's personal testimony, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, but then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, but last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And I want to say that if we don't understand, if we don't believe what these scriptures are telling us about the Christ and of his salvation work, his salvic work, then we're going to get a distorted view of Jesus. And if we have a distorted view of Jesus, then we're going to have a distorted gospel. And a distorted gospel is going to lead to error and it will lead to deception. And I've mentioned already, there are so many cults who de deny the pre-existence of Jesus as the word and as always being God. And they deny this little bit and they deny that little bit. But you put it all together and the gospel that they're preaching or teaching or declaring is so far from the truth that it leads to nowhere. Those that listen and heed will be heading still for a lost eternity. And yet when I share some of the stuff that I'm going to be sharing and it's the truths that are found in the word of God, I, I, I readily admit and say that we may not fully understand everything with our intellect. And I don't expect us all to understand everything with our intellect. But what we do is we believe it by faith. 
We believe it by faith because it's faith that's required to lead us to salvation anyway. And we believe it by faith because the source of our information or the source of our doctrine is the infallible, inherent and the inspired word of God. If it's here, I believe it. I believe it because God's word is truth and God never lies. So let's cover the facts. It's Paul who sums it up again. You see why I keep going to Paul. He sums it up so brilliantly in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. He says, have this mind among yourselves. This is continuing from where I was this morning when I read the verses, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he says, who though he was in the form of God. So he's talking about Jesus is God. He said he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So God became man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, it goes on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, there when the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 there in the upper room, we find that Peter had began already to get to grips with the facts concerning this amazing gospel. And you can read it at your leisure in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And we find that he preached all about Jesus. He preached about the Christ. He preached about his death. He preached about his resurrection. And as a result, we find that 3,000 souls were saved. See, if we really get to grips with the wonderful truth of who Jesus is, it will inspire us so much that we'll want to declare it. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And as the whole truth and nothing but the truth is declared, the Holy Spirit will be at work, just as he was on the day of Pentecost, working in the hearts of the unbelievers, till at the end they had to say, what must we do? What do we do? Because they were cut to the heart. So what are the individual facts? And I'll be very brief with this. And I could have given lots of scriptures, but I'm going to try to just... Tie it down to one for each point and perhaps give you some others you can look at. So first of all, the, the important facts. First is we need to believe in the pre-existence of Jesus as the eternal son of God. We need, we must believe in Jesus as the word of God, being with God, but at the same time being God. John 1, chapter 1. Verses 1 to 2, John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word. We know that the Word is speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And that's not talking in the beginning as we understand it of creation. It's talking way beyond that. Before anything had ever come into existence. When there was just the triune God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Or Jesus was with God. And the Word was was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning 
with God. Uh, and I've got to go to Hebrews 10, first part of 5a says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world. So to say that Christ came into the world shows that he must have existed outside of the world. He was already there. So when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you will have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So that leads us then to the second important fact. The pre-existence of Jesus, when he came into the world, he said, A body have you prepared for me, which speaks of his miraculous conception through the virgin birth, which led to his humanity. Jesus, fully God, and he becomes fully man. We could go to Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Those scriptures that talk about a child being born, a son being given, and the angel confirming that what was happening to Mary with the babe in the womb was a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said. But we go to John 1 again, and verse 14, talking again about the word, and the word the God who was, eternally was, became flesh. And he dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And remember what we read as our text in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. He could trace his lineage through the flesh. And it is reaffirmed again in Matthew 1, in the genealogy, Mark 10, and Romans chapter 9, and verse 5. So his pre-existence as the eternal Son of God, his miraculous conception, God and man. But then what is important as well is his sinless life. And we find when we come to John 19 and verse 6, that after Jesus had been taken and he'd been buffeted about from one to the other, trying to accuse him, trying to find fault in him, trying to find reason why this man should be put to death, we find that they come, it says the chief priests and the officers saw him and they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. Pilate didn't want to do it. And why? Because this is the verdict that Pilate came to. I find no guilt in him. They tried every which way possible to bring an accusation against him. But Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Time and time again, they tried to trip him up. They tried to find fault. They tried to point something out that would lead to crucifixion. But Pilate said, I find no fault, the sinless, the sinless Son of God. Therefore, because he'd lived a sinless life, he could go to the cross as the sinless and spotless Lamb of God, which you remember confirms the prophetic utterance of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus in John chapter 1 coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so because of his sinless life, he could die an atoning death. That's the good news for us, isn't it? 
because he lived a sinless life. He could die an atoning death for us. He could take our place. He could be our substitute. He could take our sin. He could take our sorrow. He could take the punishment for the sin. He could take the wrath of God for that sin because he was a sinless lamb who could go and to take our place. In Galatians 1 we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sin to deliver us up from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father and to the whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we can read more of his atoning death, Galatians 2.20, 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. But of course, he died. He died. There on the cross, he breathed his last breath. He handed his spirit over to God and his body, they lay limp on the cross, dead. And that leads to his burial. And then, of course, to his resurrection. I've read the verses already from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. He didn't just faint. He didn't just swoon. And suddenly in the cool of the grave, he suddenly came to life again. He died. He died. He breathed out his last breath. And he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. Also in accordance with the scripture. Remember again from Romans chapter 1 verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And then of course his ascension is also important. Just read the verses there from Acts chapter 1. And when Jesus had said these things. As they were looking up. He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into, into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And not that I want to put anything above anything as being more important, but his exaltation is important. Because it tells us in the, the scriptures of his exaltation that because of his obedience, because he was willing to die in our place, God was pleased with him. And so it says that therefore in Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he was with God. He came as a man into this world. He lived a sinless life. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He was ascended to his Father and he was exalted and given the highest place. King of kings and Lord of lords. And at this moment the story continues for it tells us that there in his place of his exaltation he is seated as the great high priest. The one who is interceding on our behalf. And since then if Hebrews 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of 
God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've got a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He's our intercessor and we can come before him and we can come and make our requests known to him. And whatever it is that life throws at us, we can come to the mercy seat and we find, can find mercy and we can find grace to help in time of need. But the good news continues. The one who at this moment is seated at the right hand of God and interceding in our behalf, he's coming again. He's coming again. And we read in verse 1, actually 1 again, it says, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is the Jesus whom God sent into this world to save sinners. This is the Jesus, the one that Paul proclaimed, the one that I've just been reminding us about in the scripture. This is the Jesus whom God sent into this world to save sinners. This is the only one through whom salvation can be obtained. This is the Jesus Paul proclaimed. This is the Jesus the early church believed on and accepted as Saviour and Lord. And as the same good news, the same gospel has been handed down throughout the generations. And this is the same Jesus who we were told about, who we were pointed to, and he has become our Saviour and our Lord. And this is the Jesus. This is the Jesus that the world needs to hear about today because the world needs Jesus. See, the world doesn't need a social gospel. Its problem always has been and always will be the sin problem. The world needs to be made aware of sin and convicted of sin. The world needs Jesus. The world needs the only Saviour. And once men and women recognise their need and are willing to accept and to respond, then the social ills then can then be met out of a practical outworking of the gospel. Why? For as it changes lives, it will change the environment around us. And so we must not dumb the gospel down. We must not dumb the message of the gospel down. We mustn't put a veneer over sin. We mustn't try to hide its consequences. We mustn't tone the message down to make people feel good about themselves. For we cannot feel good about ourselves until, and we will never be good in ourselves if sin is continually filling our lives and keeping us estranged from God. So as we've considered the doctrine of the gospel, it's all about Jesus, God's Son. Let us ensure that we keep him as the focus, as the one whom we preach about and the one who we share with others. Going back to the words of that hymn, Jesus only, 
is our message. Jesus all our theme shall be. We will lift up Jesus ever. Jesus only will we see. So that leads to what will be my next point, which will come to the next time. The desperate need for the gospel. Because what does this world need? It needs the gospel. 